So I recently started listening to a podcast, which whenever I start a sentence that way, my family doesn't really love it because they're kind of buckling up for this long, poor description of whatever I listen to. But I will not give you that long, poor description. Instead, just say this. I recently started listening to this podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And if you're unfamiliar with Mars Hill Church out of Seattle, um, their lead pastor was Mark Driscoll. Um, and he was a significant name in like pastoral and church ministry throughout the 90s and 2000s. Um, and seven years ago, maybe, six or seven years ago, the whole church kind of collapsed on itself um, and collapsed in on itself. And this podcast, which is currently being released, I was not very familiar with the story, but it kind of walks through the story, um, obviously from a perspective of Mars Hill church and this former lead pastor of Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll. And according to the narrator in the podcast, it's really this really tragic story of a pastor whose competency outpaced his character. And while through his leadership and through the church's ministry, there was a significant life change and people met with and encountered God and stepped into life in the kingdom of God. And while there's incredible stories that come out of it, there's also then this underlying and consistent story of systemic and pervasive trauma, spiritual abuse, and damage to many, many people. And as I was listening to this story... And I share this with you because as I was listening to this story, as I kind of immersed myself in this podcast in my driving back and forth to Dallas Valley Ranch Cab these last couple of weeks, I was like, I was like living in this story. I, while I had heard the names and the characters and was kind of familiar with it, I had never heard this story from this perspective in depth to this or in depth to this extent. And I would stop and at supper and I would sit and I would like, I would, I would be sh shaken by the story and uh, I would mourn with the story and it, I lived this story. And I think for me, that's the best example that I have of how we can start to interact more deeply with Jesus' parables is that we should be living the stories, not just hearing them as I might read a fiction novel and say like, that was a good story, I'm gonna set it aside and maybe be more like a character, but to live in the stories that they might permeate our hearts and our minds. And I think that's what these stories did in their times. And well, in their time, Jesus' stories weren't just stories about how to live nicely, but they called people's allegiance away from whether it was the Pharisees for the Jewish people or the Roman government as a whole, which was literal treason. And it was the Roman foundation for executing him was that Jesus was setting himself up as a king and setting God up as a king opposed or unaligned per se with Caesar. Um, and he was calling people's allegiance away from the Roman Empire, which became their justification for his execution. Right? So Jesus' parables then and now call people away from life within the structures and value systems of our culture, country. As an aside, some have wondered if maybe the terminology of God's country rather than God's kingdom is more culturally engaging terminology right now. 
which is an interesting thought that I'm wrestling with. But it, it called us away from our value systems into and under the kingdom of God. I also want to note that despite the fact that we hear lots of teaching in churches around on parables, and there's lots of academic work done around and behind parables, they are not set up as stories which we need years of biblical education in order to engage with. While an academic or an academically trained viewpoint may bring a different perspective to a story, Jesus was not teaching to the academically educated or academically privileged of the day. He was teaching to the normative, like to the every man of the day and the every woman of the day. As we interact with these parables on a slower and more intentional level as we live in these parables, I want to offer one more kind of challenge as we enter into this series, and that's this. There's a guy named Henry Cloud who was famous for a book called Boundaries, but he commented in an interview once that a long time ago, relationally, so early in his um, counseling career, he, would be, he said, I would be able to say to someone, well, here, here's this piece that we've kind of talked about. Go home, process this, sit on this for the next week or two week or month, however long the interval was, and then come back and we'll kind of re-examine it next week. And people would go home and they would sit on it and process it and you'd come back and re-examine it at the next session. But he said recently that recently, in the last few years, that hasn't been good advice anymore. He says the average person is so busy and distracted and hurried and rushing from thing to thing and in every spare moment we engage with some sort of different at our fingertip entertainment that we don't have time to sit with things and we don't have time to process things. And he suggested that it's starting to change kind of the way he counsels in his counseling practice in response to the reality of our day. And I think that's one of the huge barriers that we, simply being alive today, face, is that there's so much space for distraction that we don't allow the slower heart work of Jesus' teaching and parables to happen. So I'd invite you this summer, most of our lives slow down a little bit during summer especially, to make space to sit with these parables and interact with the text, bringing heaven into our hearts that we might know God and love him and love others as he opens our eyes and reshapes our priorities. So on that note, I believe we have, do we, I believe we have a scripture reading lined up and we'll dig into that scripture reading here. No, we don't. That is all right. I'm prepared to read the scripture here as I have it with me. Perfect. Here we go. We're in Matthew chapter 13. Now that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. 
And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what has sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, a few notes, kind of, as we move through this point here. Throughout the parable, we've seen now then these four different types of soil, and Jesus eventually goes back and re-explains them a little bit more clearly to his disciples. But we saw this fascinating image of, like, Jesus left the house that he was in so that he could engage and connect with more people, and he steps out kind of into the community and by the seaside, and he sits down eventually in this boat. Um, and there have been those who have preached on this passage and had everybody stand up while the speaker sits, which I won't do today, but I got my COVID, va- my second dose of my COVID vaccine earlier this week, and if I was, I was quite dizzy afterwards, if that were the case, we probably would have had to back up and do that. But during the day, it was a sign of, it was the way that it was taught. It was a sign of respect of the teacher to be sitting um, and the people standing up, engaged and listening. It's harder to doze off in your seats when you're standing, right? The second thing of note, 2,000 years ago in Israel, they had an agrarian society, so it was a very agricultural-based society, um, even more so than we are in Saskatchewan. Farming would have been kind of a normative occupation. So then a farming story or a story about scattering seed as you planted a crop would have connected and engaged very much with an everyman on an everyman story. So rather than being a distant allegory, it, was a bit, it would have been very close to the heart. Finally, Jesus' statement right at the end, whoever has ears, let him hear, becomes this call to kind of say, if you're in, then engage, and if you're out, then that's okay for now, and you do do not have to engage, or or this story may not take root or settle in the same way. And we see this developed a bit, because remember, Jesus is in this boat, and likely um, scholars assume that his disciples kind of, and some of those close to him would have been very close around him, likely in the boat with him. So we can picture Jesus kind of speaking and sharing this story with a crowd across the shore and his disciples in the boat. Um, he finishes sharing the story. Um, and the disciples came to him then and asked, okay, well, why is it that you speak to these people in parables? which is a fair question, one that we've interacted with a little bit already this morning. And Jesus replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. He's suggesting that there's this required openness, investment, and belief, and not necessarily just an intellectual belief of, yes, I believe in God, but belief may be more accurately described today as trust or a life beginning to follow Jesus or trust Jesus as the Savior and the Ancient of Days and the Creator of all things good and beautiful and true and the one ushering in new life in the kingdom of heaven. 
All right, so Jesus goes on to quote the Old Testament saying this, whoever has maybe this knowledge, whoever has this, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And this is why I speak in parables. He says, and he quotes Isaiah here, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, or in them, this prophecy that Isaiah made and this teaching that Isaiah made to his, the people around him, Jesus then, and the people listening, or rather not listening to Jesus, Jesus brings to completion in them, it kind of comes full circle. That you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, they might hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. As we hit this point in the passage, there is some debate kind of on this last verse. Of otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would hear with them. And there's debate kind of between different ends of a spectrum for schools of theological thought as to whether there's a piece of this is how people are and they will stay that way um, because that is what is destined or this is how, that is what God has predestined or if they were to open their eyes and open their hearts and turn, then I would heal them. I've te I tend to lean into the second one. I see, and we will talk, as we talk a little bit more later, it's not so much a call to say, if you haven't understood, you will never understand, but a call to say, if you turn, then I will meet with you. You will understand. Eugene Peterson translates it in the message this way, that last verse. He says, they stick their fingers in their ears so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look. So they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. C.S. Lewis makes a comment um, that if there is a lock on the gates of hell, that lock is on the inside. Indicating that it is not so much God closing a door and saying, you are out and you're gone and I will have nothing more to do with you, but us as people closing the door and saying, no God, I don't want anything to do with you and I will try any other route, but if it requires turning to you or softening my heart, then I refuse. So it carries on this image that oftentimes when we don't interact with Jesus and we don't interact with Jesus' teaching, it's rooted in us not being willing to invite God to soften our hearts. Us not being willing to respond to the invitation that he is giving us. Following this, Jesus addresses his disciples, right? Those who have responded with this kind of life, with, with this life-changing, life-altering belief. Those who have turned, who have followed Jesus, who have softened their hearts, or who have begun the process of inviting Jesus to soften their hearts. And Jesus says, verse 16, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And as we move in kind of to the third piece of this parable or this scripture passage, we have a really, really unique moment among all of Jesus' parables. Because Jesus stops 
and he pauses and he breaks down and explains the parable kind of on another level to the disciples and those close to him. Whereas normally he casts a story and leaves it to live with and wrestle with it. And that's kind of why we put it first in the series is there's a bit of that explanation following and it shapes a little bit of a model as we explore parables going forward. So as we walk through this Jesus explanation, we will identify kind of four different hearts or four different opennesses of hearts, softness of hearts, um, to Jesus' teaching as he walks alongside. So Jesus starts with this. He says, listen to, to the disciples. He says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. And here's this first type of soil, what we'll call the calloused or the hardened heart. It says, verse 19, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one come and comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Now, in this first piece of the heart, I think the space or the response or the journey towards God at this point is that invitation to softening as we carry forward this belief that we can grow and we can respond differently. And that seed continues to be sown. So we see the second heart then, as Jesus moves on, what we'll call the shallow heart. And Jesus says, verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Third, we see the seed of the distracted heart, is what we'll call it today. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. And fourth, we'll look at the soft heart. But the seed falling on, verse 23, but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, growing up, I often, and whether this was taught or not, the, the impression I left kind of my teen years with was these are kind of the four heart spaces that we can have as people in response to God and in response to God's word. And that's where this parable had settled with me. Again, among scholars, the generally understanding space is that rather than just one interpretation to a parable, a parable can engage with us and connect with us on different levels and in different ways, especially as we sit with it. And I wrestled sometimes with this, well, if I'm not a soft heart, then, or if I'm not maybe bringing lots of people to Jesus as what I considered the fruit of the soft heart, and we'll talk about that more later on, but then am I not a soft heart? Am I a different heart? And rather than maybe four block categories, I want to suggest a different way of engaging with the parable. And while it is not a perfect way, and I don't know that we have perfect ways of engaging with Jesus' parables, hopefully it can bring a different perspective as we live in these parables. 
In his book, An Invitation to a Journey, Robert Mulholland Jr. describes four stages of the classic Christian pilgrimage, and so this would be rooted hundreds of years ago, in a generally accepted Christian pilgrimage or Christian journey. And in these four stages, the four stages of awakening, purgation, illumination, and union, and we'll dig into each of those a little bit more, he writes that this classic Christian pilgrimage towards wholeness in Christ can be thought of either as, so it will talk about either as an overall path of Christian spirituality through life, so either like an overarching journey, or it can be thought of, I lost my spot here, or um, the path towards wholeness in any given area of our lives. So we'll explore these four stages, and we'll explore how each of them, to a degree, correlates with moving from one heart to a different heart, um, suggesting that as followers of Jesus or as people, we, it, to, in one understanding, can start with a hardened heart to God, have that heart softened to a shallow heart, deepened to a distracted heart, and then grown into this soft heart that's open and receptive for God. And rather than a, a linear journey that all of us walk on, while it can describe our overall journey to God, becoming more and more receptive and engaged with God and with the word of God, it also applies then maybe to each or to various areas of our life as we are brought into, made a, awakened to a new area of life that God is calling to come into alignment with him, and that area of our life then moves from a hardened heart to a shallow heart to maybe distracted, and so on and so forth. So the first stage that we're looking at, walk with me here, is then what Mahalan describes as awakening. And awakening is this coming to the realization, it's this Awakening is the awareness, as Mulholland describes, of a door being opened to a whole new dynamic of being. So this would be realizing, coming to terms with, oh, maybe I do need to engage with God as God, or I need to engage with Jesus not just as a teacher or a historical figure, but as the Son of God. We See, we realize that we come to this threshold of some sort, and we have to respond in some way. That response might be immediate, or it may come after much wrestling um, and revisiting a number of times. Maybe an example of this is the drummer for the band Rush passed away last year. His name was Neil Peart, and he was accepted to be one of the greatest drummers in the world. He would be in the top tier of drummers. Partway, like well into his career in the 90s, as he was already recognized as one of the greatest drummers, he was playing in, he was doing a, a blues tribute. And he realized that maybe there's this whole new element of drumming that I have to learn from. So he got in touch with a drum teacher named Freddie Gruber, a jazz player, and began taking drum lessons again. And in this journey, he essentially reinvented his whole style of playing. Gruber told him, you like, you hit the drums through the skins, like you hit at the floor and hit the drum on the way down, but you should be playing above the drums. I know it doesn't mean anything to much of us. But 
He switched his grip of the drumstick, which if you've done anything for a long time where you're like well-rooted in how you do it, um, it, it would be, well, it'd be probably, it'd be probably akin to driving a racing car and switching from driving like Canadian style with the driver on the left to the driver on the right. So something that's so ingrained in your heart, all of a sudden you're shifting not with your right hand, but with your left hand, right? Like, so in this journey, he reinvented his whole playing style. He had this awakening in the middle of his journey that there was another space to invest into or a new area of life that he could grow. And he said that this was, just, this was huge in him continuing to develop as a drummer. On our pilgrimage or as our journey as disciples of Jesus, there is a starting point that starts with this awakening, an awareness to who God is and the call to follow. Especially in the last hundred years of Christianity, we've been good at this, relatively speaking. We've been, we've hugely emphasized calling people to an awakening to respond to God. This would be, to put a face to it, this would be like the Billy Graham movement that we need to call to an awakening. And it's a core beginning. It is the beginning of our following of Jesus. But as we use this language, awakenings also happen like Pert's awakening to a new style of drumming in our hearts and our lives. So we're on a journey with Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus calls out a different space in our life that we become aware to, one which maybe would have said, no, I'm, I'm good at that. For me, when, after Crawford was born, I identified this, that I was often quick to anger, but it wasn't this like yelling anger, it was more of a murmuring anger where I would be upset, but because I was tired, I had much less capacity or willpower to control it. And so I had to come face to face with this piece. I was awakened to this piece of me that I did not know was there. In Acts chapter 9, we see the apostle, well, we see Saul, who later be, who becomes the apostle Paul, was persecuting the church after Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. But God calls him and he has this awakening moment where he begins this journey of following Christ. So there's this biblical background for starting a journey following Christ, right? The second step is purgation, and I, I don't like this word. Like, the root word is purge, and it, like, it, I, I don't like it. But I think, I think it's a, I think it's probably the most culturally offensive stage as he writes it in here, and I don't know that that's a really bad thing, Culturally, we like to accept, like in this postmodern and moral relativist world, we typically accept, okay, you do you, um, and that's okay, and you, even moving into a space then of you follow Jesus your way, as long as it's biblical, and that's okay, and, but we all engage with this, I think, to varying degrees, especially in our younger culture. But I think maybe, the reason I didn't want to maybe reword this purgation is that I think there's value to it. There's value to being a little bit unsettled by it. And while awakening is the response to a hardened heart, purgation becomes this response to a shallow heart. Oftentimes when we have, or at camp all the time, we see this awakening where people say, yes, I want to follow Jesus and I believe in Jesus, and that's kind of as far as it goes, and our discipleship to Jesus sits on a surface layer. Or as Jesus describes, it quickly withers under, or in the sun, or in the wind. 
but this purgation is kind of the digging up of deeper things and life patterns. In this classical Christian pilgrimage, it's described as, or in this classical, it's described then as we first engage with some of the blatant or the sins that we're aware of and that we're like, okay, this is something that I need to bring into alignment with God. But it quickly then moves into things that we are not aware of and we have these smaller or mini awakenings to different areas of our life that respond to God or in the ways we can respond to God. Now, in our current Christian moment and our current cultural moment, we have a, we've been good, as I said, at calling people to awakening, but moving beyond that has been somewhat of a challenge. In the evangelical movements throughout the 20th century, which made Christianity in one way accessible to masses and more quickly, there was a heart of saying, we want to distill the gospel down into its core truth that we can communicate it effectively and efficiently. But unfortunately, it left many people with a street-level understanding of this that said, once I've had an awakening to God and I've responded to Jesus and I know I'm not going to hell, but I am going to heaven when I die, then I am a Christian. And so the weakness then of the approach, as we're seeing, is we end up with we can end up, I should say, we can end up with nominally committed Christians who are interested in the awakening and who want to go to heaven when we die, but we don't have an understanding that the spiritual journey has, in this metaphor anyway, three more steps beyond that. And when that purgation comes and it's, God starts to call us to give up things that are rooted in our lives or we become awakened to more things and there's a discomfort that comes with it, we often tap out and go back to our comfortable, safer ways of living. By, under, by engaging with the parable this way, we start to understand or communicate a bit more clearly the depth of Christian journey that follows beyond that. Right? And as God calls us to change our lives or to give up things, to change our relationship with finances or with sexuality or with truth or with ethics, to bring them into alignment under the kingdom of God, we begin to trust God more because as we respond to his call and we let things go and we accept that life change, we find intimacy with God behind it. And we find a deeper relationship with God and we find a whole another stage of a Christian journey. So rather than our faith or our Christianity becoming something that we respond to once and table and then live in, it's something that we continue to grow in. And it's something that we understand has far more steps to that journey where we bring our whole being under alignment with Christ. But the second challenge coming out of that and not having a significant maybe cultural, like all of us having this a maybe significant understanding of the depth of the journey, and I don't want to put myself in, I have the understanding and you don't, this is something that I've been growing in a lot lately or been working to grow in. We often use what Gregory Boyd calls the try harder solution, where we say, all right, there are elements of my life maybe that aren't aligned with God or that I haven't brought under the reign and rule of God. I continue to live in these patterns and I continue to see the world in certain ways, but I want to follow God. 
So we try really, really hard. He describes it, I think, phenomenally in this way. If you've ever complained of not experiencing the transformation that the Bible promises, you might have run into a dose of righteous indignation. He says, the problem I can hear someone saying is that you aren't taking the word of God seriously, or you aren't committed enough, or you aren't praying enough, or you aren't willing to count the cost, or you aren't preaching enough against sin, or you ought to put God first, ought to witness more, ought to read your Bible more, ought to be in church more, you ought to, ought to, ought to. He goes on and he says, and, and who could argue with any of this? It's true. But the more fundamental question is, why don't we? Is it just a matter of a lack of willpower or self-control? See, this try-harder approach may indeed motivate people to change their behavior, at least temporarily, but it doesn't usually result in the permanent change in heart or attitude that Jesus calls us to. It doesn't transform the core of our being. He goes on later to say that what the try-harder solution does is it confuses the effect with the cause. It puts the caboose before the engine. It implicitly assumes that what the believer does determines who the believer is, rather than vice versa. It makes behavior the means to acquiring a new identity rather than a new identity the means to acquiring new behavior. It makes the foundation for growth the goal of growth and then hinders genuine growth. Because as we read through the New Testament, it generally speaks of godly behavior as flowing from the believer's identity in Christ rather than being defined by their creator and savior. They continue to be defined by our patterns of this world, right? our mentally played tapes that come from our upbringing and culture and experience. And I, that's where we move into this third space of illumination. And I think if I was going to draw a more accurate diagram, it would have a lot of back and forth and squiggles in between the middle as it's somewhat nonlinear and it all blends together. But this is a lot easier to explain. But we move into this third piece then of illumination. And the illumination phrase essentially is bringing light to who God is and who we are in light of God. And I think this illumination phrase is our response to the distracted heart. Let me read Jesus' description of the distracted heart again, because I think it is just critical and, like, cuts me right to the core. It says this. Verse 22, the seed falling among, among thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Right? The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, make, causing it to be unfruitful. And while I, 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 I want to be cautious projecting my experience onto others, but I think I will venture to say that as a rule, if we are not actively aware of the ways the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth threaten to or do choke out the word in our lives... We need to be really intentional about inviting the Holy Spirit to re-examine that in our lives and quite possibly engaging or pursuing then this phase of illumination. As we move here, there's less of a, as we move into this illumination phase, there's less of a focus on actions, what we maybe traditionally call 
sins, but a greater focus than on the heart. We live more in this total commitment and investment to God in love. We live more, to use the phrase many have used before, as human beings and less as human doings. We're defined less by what we do and more by who we are in God. And we start to see practically a more, more and more engagement and consistent prayer um, and a deeper relationship with God. Mulholland says that as long as we perceive God as out there, separated from us, we'll understand ourselves as independent, autonomous beings. Right? We'll labor under the anxiety that causes us to keep control of our relationship to God and control our limited world. But the peace that keeps our hearts and minds surpasses this type of self-understanding. The peace that we begin to experience with God as he continues to work in our hearts, as we make time and space for him, is this peace of a deep integration of our being that comes from the release of ourselves to God. Maybe a cultural example of what this third step could look like is this. Um, in a sermon, J.T. Thomas quoted a Columbia University professor called John McWhorter. And Warder was, or McWhorter was writing about anti-racism, specifically in the States. And he says, within the, and specifically within the, con the current contemporary context in the USA. But he suggests that we, while we can see in this, there are three kind of universal patterns of addressing and growing out of Racism, And he says the first pattern or the first wave is aimed primarily at abolishing slavery, um, the, the overarching oppression. A second wave was visible then in the civil rights movement, um, primarily in ending segregation um, and kind of the remnants of that or still the rooted class system. And he says, but the third wave that he identifies, specifically the states, although I think our... First Nations relationship carry a lot of parallels or similarities. He addresses the third wave, which we see in America now, that is rooted in addressing concrete issues like police violence. And while it's rooted in that, it really is, it really is more focused to a new degree on addressing how people think. He goes on to say that anti-racist movements today focus more greatly on pinpointing the iniquity in people's hearts. And as long as that exists within people's hearts, there cannot be an end to racism today. This would maybe be an example of, rather than a whole lifespan of moving through this journey, a space of awakening, purgation, illumination, and addressing a, a more specific context within the space of racism that ties into the whole journey, but to which we can have our own awakening, right? It deals, illumination then, this third stage, is like the third wave in that it deals more with our hearts than it does with our actions. And then a church today, we tend to, especially in our church, where we have a very educated average we have a lot of head knowledge that we carry into things, but we tend to be weaker on the heart knowledge. And it's very much a reflection of our culture. And this is something that 
I've been working on personally and something that we need to continue to work on to translate our head knowledge down into heart knowledge through practice. Finally, um, the last stage following this soft heart is union. And union is, I don't know. If I'm being totally honest, I'm speaking a lot from what I've read and learned, and I don't, I'm trying to assess where I fall in this pattern. I think a takeaway for lots of us is finding out where we are in the journey, especially in different spaces uh, or in our overall journey. To pull a lot from others. Union is rooted then in this, once we've come to recognition of who we are and who God is, we live in that much more consistently. We're far less self-reliant and we're far more God-reliant. We spend more t less time concerned with doing the things that make us godly or doing the things that create a good relationship with God and more time concerned with being with God. It would be this perfect picture of marriage that we continue to work for and yearn for. And so rather than saying a lot more on it now, well, I will, I will mention one more thing. As I've been kind of picturing this and learning about this and figuring out that I don't really know where to go with talking about the last piece of this, well, two comments. The first one, Jesus displays this really, really well. Um, and I was reading about how in Jesus becoming human, he sets aside, set aside his godness, quote unquote, to live as a human. Um, and thus his ministry was rooted in the ministry of the Holy Spirit and attentiveness to God and spiritual gifts. And as we move towards that, we move towards this space of union. Um, in the Middle Ages, spiritual leaders, some spiritual leaders described moving into union as entering a cloud of unknowing where we start to unlearn a lot of the things that we previously knew or understood about God in light of who God really is. And a lot of the frameworks and structures that we start at the beginning become less important because we know God. Similarly, similarly to how when I got married, there were a whole bunch of like, these are the things that I could do. And I'm starting to see some of those kind of break, break down as categories and come a little bit more together smoothly four years in, so there's, there's a lot more to go yet. But, yeah, anyway, lest I, lest I cast then the union as this like perfect paradise, no more worries moment, parts of this as described in the classical Christian pilgrimage are the dark night of the soul as is described. Um, and the idea that as we then become closer and closer to God, we sometimes have a desert or wilderness experience where we're we feel distant from God and we begin to rework the ways in which we've become to rely on knowing God. But the hope that I want to leave you with, first, the hope that I want to leave you with is this, that our Christian journey is not rooted just in a first step of awakening or a second step of not doing bad things, but there is a long pilgrimage of knowing God and growing closer to God and God reworking our heart and our life. 
And secondly, I want to address maybe the fault that I found with this framework or laying this framework onto Jesus' parable is the implication that this soft heart where there is fruit of the Spirit evident and where the crop grows 160 or 30 times more is rooted kind of at this end of Christian pilgrimage piece. Um, that would be an inaccurate takeaway. The assumption that God can only work or the, can only do kingdom work through those Christians who are more mature or who have been following longer or who have been on their Christian pilgrimage for a long time is wrong. Because the Holy Spirit works through us as we open our hearts to him. So there is a space where as we say, God, I want to have a soft heart and I want to know you, that the Holy Spirit is present and working with our lives. So rather than this saying, you have to go through three levels of Christianity before you get here, it's more to say, in a space of my life where I am maybe at an awakening phase, or maybe I've, God's pointed out a distracted heart to me where I've become overrun and distracted by the worries of the world and the deceitfulness or desire or delight in wealth rather than God. I can maybe respond to that by saying, God, help me know more of who you are. Or I can respond to a shallow heart saying, I don't know where to go with my faith, saying, God, how can I bring my life more in alignment with you? And casting that within a framework of a long and beautiful pilgrimage and journey toward God. So to conclude, I want to challenge you to explore and identify where are you at. Or maybe in what part of your life that God has currently brought to your attention are you at a space? How can you respond to it? How can you continue to grow? How can you ask God to help make you aware of what comes next? And as we finish, I want to invite you to join me in communion. As rooted... In that this is not a journey that we undertake alone. As that try harder solution is ultimately empty and doesn't work and doesn't lead to life change. This is not something that Jesus or God has left us in alone. But instead it's something that we do in communion with him. So to read from Matthew. While they were eating... Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, oh, I'm, I'm opening this thing all wrong. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. So this is the body of Christ, broken for you. Let's eat together in remembrance of him. Then Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For I tell you, I do not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. 
This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. Let's drink together proclaiming the gospel and the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ until he comes again. God, as we long to journey on this pilgrimage towards you, as we long to grow as your disciples and to live as your disciples, I pray that you would impress upon us the consistency of your love and your faithfulness and your relationship. And I pray that you would delight us, that we would delight in the journey to knowing you and loving you, less bound up by finding our self-worth in the things that we do or the places that we hold, but in growing ever more reliant upon you and your love and your relationship. I pray this in your name, Jesus.